Hi, today is Wednesday, November the 5th. I am in India as part of the United Way delegation. Um, we're delighted and honored to have you with us this afternoon or this morning, uh, depending on where you're located. And we are going to be discussing the topic of mergers and acquisitions, which we believe is a very important topic uh, always, but even more important at this time because of the different mergers and acquisitions taking place in the financial services industry. We welcome you to today's Murthy Law Firm's teleconference on mergers and acquisitions. Please note that as with all of our teleconferences, the information and materials on murthy.com and elsewhere, this teleconference is copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm, no recording or other duplication of services is allowed for all of our copyrighted materials. Uh, this is Sheila Murthy, and I have with me two of our fantastic attorneys, attorney Aaron Finkelstein and attorney Karzad Mehta. Um, their resumes and bio are more fully mentioned on the Murthy Law Firm website. What I'm going to do is start off with a brief introduction of a few terms. Uh, which will put into context the rest of the discussion. And then Korzad is going to speak about what happens if there is a merger, an acquisition, or an asset purchase with respect to I-9s. And Aaron is going to talk in context of labor certifications and I-140 petitions. And then, um, uh, as well as H-1B petitions, Korzad will touch upon E and L petitions and the impact of mergers, acquisitions, asset purchases, etc. And Korzad is going to continue to discuss some of those issues, and Aaron is going to end with a change, if there's a change in geographic location as part of the corporate change. And I will then uh, wrap up with a brief conclusion. As usual, we expect the teleconference to take no more than about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. Uh, we hope you find our teleconferences fantastic, useful, and practical, uh, whether you are an employer, uh, or if you're the employee going through the process, but I know that for businesses and employers, this is a very important issue. Um, so let's get started. Um, the common terms that are used in the immigration context for mergers and acquisitions are the term merger. Well, what exactly is a merger? Legally and technically, a merger is when a purchasing company acquires the assets and the liabilities of a target company and where one or the other party to the merger ceases to exist by operation of law and becomes part of the surviving entity. In the mergers, there are three kinds of mergers, but maybe we're getting a little technical, but it might be helpful. One is a forward merger where the purchaser survives. Then you have a reverse merger where the target company survives. And finally, you have a consolidation where a new entity is created from the purchase of the target company and both the purchaser and the target company both cease to exist. So we've touched upon mergers. The second important uh, definition is an acquisition. What is an acquisition? Generally an acquisition is when a purchaser buys stock off the target company using either stock or cash or a combination of the two as compensation. The target company then continues to exist under a different ownership structure. So that's the acquisition. 
So we talked about mergers and we talked about acquisitions and now we go to an asset purchase. An asset purchase is generally when a purchaser acquires some or all of a target company's assets and assumes part or all of the target company's liabilities. Um, so you, here is where you just purchase the assets of the entity. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about a spin-off. A spin-off is generally where the business divests itself of a division or a department and the new division or department becomes a separate legal entity. So it's basically being spun off. It's supposed to make common sense. The words are supposed to be easy to understand, and I think they are, but we're getting just technical to make sure we place into context the rest of the discussion. Finally, I know this question is often asked of us during consultations and otherwise, on what exactly is a successor in interest? In the immigration context, a successor in interest is the entity that ends up being the successor to the earlier entity, obviously, and it is usually the entity that ends up assuming all of the rights, duties, and obligations and assets of the original employer and continues to operate the same type of business as the original employer. Typically, the new surviving entity from a corporate transaction is a successor in interest. However, as you will hear from both Aaron and Korzad, it doesn't necessarily have to be an identical structure or it doesn't even have to continue the same type of business. It can actually vary substantially and still continue with a lot of the immigration um, benefits from the earlier company, even though the successor and interest in the corporate law context is quite different than in an immigration law context. So Korzad, uh, with that brief sort of background of terms, I figured it would help if you would be able to explain an answer between Aaron and you, if the new entity is created from the corporate transaction, as I just explained, whether it's a merger, a spin-off, a consolidation, an acquisition, an asset purchase spin-off, what steps should be taken in the case of either an I-9 or um, just let's touch with the uh, touch upon the I-9 and then we'll have Aaron look at the labor cert. Thanks, Sheila. Um, typically with a corporate restructure, merger, spin-off, consolidation, divestiture, anything like that, one of the first things that a um, that a uh, purchasing company uh, would want to take a look at are their target company's I-9s. What are I-9s? I think we've spoken about this in previous Murthy, um, Murthy conferences, would be, or teleconferences rather, would be uh, the uh, Employment Eligibility Verification Form, which is filled out not only for non-citizen employees, but also for citizen employees and other U.S. workers to ensure that a workforce is lawfully authorized to work in the United States. Now, in, in, in the context of a corporate restructuring or a change of the, of, of the nature that we're talking about this afternoon or morning, the statute requires that an, that, a, uh, that an employer that retains the employees after the corporate change be responsible for I-9s and verification. However, that new employer is not required to prepare brand new I-9 forms. The I-9 forms that were maintained previously can remain on the books and, are, and do not need to be changed. However, the new employer, the target company, the surviving entity, whatever it is that remains after the corporate restructure is liable for any mistakes or any types of irregularities that are on those I-9s, even though they were filled out before the restructuring took place. And just to make, for those who are lawyers here, we can actually give the 8 CFR <laughs> 274A2B1, etc. But it's there in the statute and the regulations. You know, in the context, if there's a if there's a challenge on the uh, on the um, validity of the previously filled out I-9s, 
the, a court that's involved would look at the following to determine what that would be. And they'd look at either the continuity of ownership, the time between dissolution of the old entity and the formation of the new entity, the continuation of the type of business, and how the new entity or the surviving entity has assumed the liabilities of the former entity. Wonderful, wonderful. So this is really helpful. So uh, the summary is basically that um, the I-9s ultimately become the responsibility of the surviving entity and the fact that the earlier entity had all kinds of problems or errors is just no excuse. Um, and that's very helpful, Korzad. Aaron, how is this whole issue, with, how does the whole corporate, the successor and interest, how is it impacted in the case of a labor certification and an I-140 petition? Well, thank you, Sheila. Well, I think that, first of all, if you look at labor certification, um, you know, it's clear that once a labor certification is filed to the Department of Labor, uh, the labor certification at this point cannot be amended or changed. Um, so if you wanted to make an amendment or you wanted to indicate that it was a new company entity, uh, the, and you wanted to do it at that particular moment in time while the case was pending, the only way to be able to do that would be to withdraw and to refile. However, um, what we've seen and what has been a, a practice in the past has been to let the labor certification go through the process and clear the labor certification stage and then introduce the concept of successor and interest or demonstrate the merger um, at the I-140 stage indicating the new company or the new entity's name, showing press releases and other indusha to demonstrate clearly that it's the same company under this developed or emerged circumstances. And usually that's something that would work very well. If a company is very concerned about let, waiting it out, the, the, the labor certification is in company A's name, and now company is company B, completely different company, completely different situation, they're concerned about letting the labor certification ride, one option that is available is to let the old labor certification still run its course under the old company's name, and perhaps file a second labor certification in the new company's name so that if there is an issue, you wouldn't lose any time or any e effort and you'd pretty much have all your bases covered. Um, for the I-140 petition, when we're talking about where you're filing an I-140 petition, so we've discussed where you've pre, right before you filed the I-140 petition, where the labor certification is approved, you're going to go ahead and you're going to file an amend, you're going to file an indication of the new company's name and all the indusha to show that it's the successor in interest. But what if the I-140 is already pending or the I-140 is approved? If the I-140 is pending or the I-140 is approved and it's by itself, in other words, it was a single filing, not a filing along with a 45, with an I-45 adjustment of status application, well, um, at that point in time, you would go back to 1993 uh, for, a, for a memo that comes from the, uh, from the legacy INS, from Legacy Immigration Naturalization Service, and in that memo it says that an amended I-140 would be required to be filed, and the amended I-140 would indicate the successor and interest and the new company information. So at that point in time, you'd either withdraw the pending I-140 or you would refile an I-140 indicating the new company's name. If, however, you filed the I-140 and you did a concurrent filing along with a I-485, 
Um, that's where things get a drop murky. You go into what I would say a gray area. If the I-140 is not approved, but it was perhaps approvable when filed, and the 180 days has passed, so you'd perhaps be eligible for AC-21, there's an argument to say, why bother to refile the I-140, let it run through as an AC-21 case, as a portability case. If the I-140 is approved and the 45 was pending for 180 days, it's a different company structure, whether it's a merger, whether it's an acquisition, whether it's a successor in interest, it is a different company, it is a different situation. Clearly there, you would probably be okay pursuing the AC-21 very clearly. Uh, these are places where things get a little murky and the law gets a little light. So in these types of situations, while I can give you suggestions, the best thing to do really is to contact an attorney who can really delve into this a little bit deeper and give you some customized advice on those situations. Right. And I think what happens a lot of times is a corporate lawyers will keep talking about, well, this is not a merger, this is a, this is a consolidation, this is a spin-off, this is an acquisition. And I think there was also some kind of an Efren Hernandez memo from maybe four or five years ago, response actually to a letter to an attorney saying, we don't really care what it's called and what the structure is and whether it continues the same kind of business. We don't care about any of those factors for the traditional successor interest. What we do certainly care about is whether the new entity is taking on the employees and taking on the responsibility for all of the employees. And then, if that's the case, we will go ahead and allow you to continue processing the green card case as is. Um, there may be nuances, and again, you would need to speak to one of the uh, the one of us, hopefully, at the Murthy Law Firm that can guide you and help you with this. Should uh, should there be um, uh, some sort of a, a corporate spin-off acquisition or merger? Aaron, let's continue the discussion with you, where we can talk a little bit about like the H-1B kinds of situations, H-1B petitions. What happens? when there is one of these kinds of successor and interest situations? Well, H-1B is a, a lot clearer. And the reason why is because there's actually a law that addresses what happens to do with AC-21, with, excuse me, with H-1Bs when you're dealing with a successor and interest or a merger or acquisition or a spin-off type of situation. Um, essentially, what they're looking for is if the new entity is assuming um, the liabilities for the immigration process, um, related to the public access files and the labor condition applications, it's pretty clear that you would, mo you would most likely not be required to file amended petitions in those situations. Um, is similarly, for example, if there were multiple companies that were joining together under one name of under one, under one entity, similarly, again, as long as you were dealing with, the, with an assumption of assets and assumption of liabilities and the immigration-related documentation, you would not be required to do an amended petition. Uh, this does assume, however, that the job duties and the location um, and the terms and conditions of the employment will stay, uh, will stay fundamentally the same, will stay uh, substantially the same. Uh, there is, um, if, for example, the person, the company is going to be moving or the job is going to be changing or the position is going to be one that's going to be, um, that's going to be different, in that situation you would require uh, to, you would be required to file a new, um, a new amended uh, H-1B. Similarly, um, in a situation where, where, so we've talked about where, for example, the, um, the company, the location has changed, 
But similarly, um, we talked about where there's a change of the employee's job duties. We've also spoken about where, uh, where there's a change of the job duties. But similarly, if for example, if the location is going to change, um, one thing that's different is you would be required to file a new LCA to, do to document the change in location. And if you fail to file the new LCA, I believe you would at that point in time need to file a new, a new um, amended H1 to cover the new area. Also, when, you when it comes time for the renewals or the extensions or to bring in new employees, at that point in time also, you would need to be able to um, file the new H-1Bs or the amendments or the extensions. You'd need to be able to file them in the new company name. Okay. Um, so all of these changes really happened as a result of a lot of lobbying on the part of various uh, ALL lawyers. Uh, years and years ago, and that's when they passed the Visa Waiver Permanent Act law. I believe it was around 2000 um, or thereabouts. And basically, at that point, until then, each time there was a merger and acquisition, you had to file thousands or hundreds and hundreds of H-1 petitions, which of course can, especially with the new training fees and all of that, when I say new, I'm dating myself, but these additional thousands of dollars worth of training fees, you're talking several thousands of dollars, which can become very, very difficult and onerous. And sometimes major corporate deals fell through because of a large number of foreign national employees. So this change where uh, the law specifically was allowed um, it changes. But as Aaron just pointed out, I think the crux of the issue is that they, it cannot have, it must be same identical kind of work duties, location. It can't, if there's a substantial change of any kind, either in the work location, the job duties, or any of that, the 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 new employer or the new entity, the the new um, successor entity is required to then file the new or amended petition, uh, because and then there's a whole lot of debate and analysis. And by the way, there's still no regulations as as usual with USCIS on this issue because. Uh, nobody knows exactly what is the same or similar substantial changes. Again, this is there's a little bit of gray and murky areas on this area. So, Aaron, let's continue. When, when does what are the LCA obligations of the employer? Well, the LCA obligations, the new employer uh, employing entity has to maintain a list of H-1B non-immigrant transferred to the new employing entity, and also maintain a list of some information in the public access file. Um, they have to maintain a list of each affected LCA number and the date of its certification. Um, they need to have a description of the new employing entity of the new company's actual wage system. Um, and they also want to have a sworn statement by an authorized representative of the new employing entity expressly acknowledging the entity's assumption of all the obligations, liabilities, and undertakings arising from or under attestation made in each certified, in each certified and effective LCA uh, filed by the predecessor, by the previous company um, that existed. Um, I think those would be the LCA obligations that the new entity would have, and if they were able to comply with these obligations, as Sheila, as Sheila mentioned, it would save them a lot of money in not having to do all these substantial refilings that used to take place in the past. Wonderful, wonderful. So they actually need to attach this one statement by the new entity saying that they will continue to do it or take on or file new LCAs or amended. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Korzad, let's get to you, as I mentioned earlier, to discuss a little bit of the impact on e-petitions and l-petitions for companies. 
Thanks, Sheila. Um, just before we jump into it, just a quick refresher. What is an e-petition? What is an e-visa uh, classification for? E-visa classification is for treaty traders and treaty investors. These are countries that have treaties with the United States for mutual economic trade and development. There's usually a, a, concomitant, um, a concomitant and analogous visa classification with the, uh, with the uh, country of the non-citizen's nationality. L petitions we might be a little bit more familiar with. Those are petitions for uh, intercompany transferees of either manager, executive, or um, employees with specialized knowledge. Um, for E&L petitions, any change in ownership may have the effect of changing the nationality of the entity for e, in e, um, in e, in e um, classification cases, or adverse, adversely affecting the qualifying relationship upon which the classification of uh, uh, the L classification exists, either um, the the subsidiary branch, um, you know, um, uh, uh, parent, uh, that type of relationship. Uh, starting, let's start. If, let's start with. Um, well, before we start into the, uh, talking about e visa petitions in greater detail, let me also say that if there is a corporate change like this with respect to e or e or uh, l visas, there is no grace period if that if that results in a in a uh, in a uh, change in eligibility. I'm sorry, a change in eligibility. Um, so if if the if the corporate change does have an adverse effect on the visa classification, any any um, am amendment or any uh, any type of ameliorative action must be taken ASAP as soon as possible. With respect to e petitions, a substan a substantive change would require filing a new uh, petition for e classification, um, and a change is substantive when there is a fundamental change in the employer's basic characteristics. Uh, so it was an E petition that would be the co company's nationality, and if the change results in a difference in the uh, employment in the ownership structure, uh, that results in a change of nationality in the company, that would require an amended petition. Also, so you're saying if it changes from one country to another country, so where you're using a different treaty trader, treaty investor classification than a new E1 E petition? Yeah, practically speaking, Sheila, if uh, if the company was owned by Indians, mm -hmm. Indian people majority, and then um, one one of the uh, owners sold off to a uh, a Canadian individual, and that that made the uh, the majority ownership change from Indian to Canadian. Then, there, then that would be a substantive change in the petition or the classification, which would require an amendment. Except that India, India is not, is a, good not, a, not a good example because, right. a lot, I mean, it can be UK, UK or Canada. UK or Canada uh, right. As many of you know, there is no treaty of trade, friendship, or commerce between the United States and India as of now. Maybe we need to hire some of those lobbyists in Congress in Washington D.C. to lobby for a treaty of trade, friendship, and commerce to actually take place because it's a huge benefit. It's similar to the L where there's no visa number and there's no cap numbers and a lot of the issues like the H1 prevailing wages, et cetera, do not apply. Uh, it's a huge benefit and many, many countries, especially developing uh, developed countries, tend to be uh, having E1, E2 eligibility. Okay. Now for minor non-substantive changes, there wouldn't need to be an amendment. And, um, and uh, changes are non-substantive when they are you know, either a mere change in the name of the treaty or if the owner changes but the nationality uh, does not change. Um, in some mergers and acquisitions where there's, n and, and in some mergers and acquisitions where there's no effect on the employment or the relationship of the uh, non-citizen to the approved trade activity. Now shifting gears to L, L petitions, 
an, an employer would be required to file amended petitions with the USCIS when there are changes in the approved qualifying uh, relationships, either if there's a change of, of parent or subsidiary relationship or branch relationship. Um, so changes requiring an amended petition include a significant change in the beneficiary's duties. So if a specialized uh, knowledge professional changed to a managerial or executive petition, or transfer from one company to another in the same organization where the beneficiary becomes the employee of the new company. Okay, so Korza, let me continue with you before we jump to Aaron to sort of conclude in a bit. But basically, if a company simply gains employees as part of some sort of an asset purchase, where the assets of the, are purchased, what steps need to be taken and how would it differ? An asset purchase would be treated under immigration law exactly the way a merger would be uh, treated because there's a, a, you know, as one where a new entity would be created. The purchaser would still need to take all the ameliorative steps that Aaron and I have spoken of uh, thus far with respect to labor certifications, I-140s that, that do not benefit from AC-21, H-1B petitions uh, as, um, as required by the law that uh, Aaron, um, Aaron spoke about. Right, and also, and as I think Aaron also mentioned, AC-21 could be used, whereas in the previous, prior to AC-21 law, if there was a merger and acquisition, a new I-140 petition had to be filed, and now we can just continue with the um, using the pre previously approved I-140 petition to continue with the process. And one thing it's very important to know is that just because your your corporate lawyer or your business lawyer calls it an asset purchase, um, it may not be an asset purchase in conceptually for immigration purposes. And just a quick example is. If, for example, it's an asset purchase, but you're transferring all the employees and you're going to give them all the seniority that they previously had for their 401k retirements or for their health benefits or for their vacation time or to assist them with their immigration needs, um, that might be something that would be perceived sufficient enough as accepting a liability so that it would not be perceived asset only from an immigration perspective where you may be able to have some of the successor and in interest um, benefits. In benefits and you're down. saying basically it's the same employer ID number, the same, same, so actually if it's the same tax ID number, immigration really doesn't even care if there's an asset purchase, a successor, a merger interest, blah, 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 because as far as they're concerned, it's just the same, pretty much the same company with the same liabilities and all of the other obligations because they want to hold somebody liable for I-9 violations, for Department of Labor violations, I mean, Department of Labor wants to hold in USCIS for any H-1B type of violations. Okay, Korzat, so let's try to uh, talk a little bit about if there's a change of ownership such as a corporate buyout, but the purchased company then continues operating just as before, what is the difference with respect to H's and L's and, and E's? We kind of alluded to it in your last comment, Sheila. Oh. I mean, if the, if the, if the, uh, if the company uh, moves forward and is uh, not subs substantively changing its operations um, and it's just moving forward as it did previously, uh, there's, really, there's really not much that needs to be changed. USCIS will continue forward. Um, however, you know, you, you know the, the the changes with respect to L petitions. If it's you know, as we said previously, if there's if the, con the company continues operating as, as before, there would be no need to file amended petitions uh, because the qualifying relationships would be likely untouched. Uh, and but with E petitions, it's a little bit different because if the uh, change in ownership 
change the nationality, then that would that might adversely affect treaty employees or traders present in the United States, which would require an amended petition. Wonderful, wonderful. And I think you know, as we've sort of said, and I know Aaron's going to talk about a little bit uh, the, the, now about what happens, uh, Aaron, if there is a change of geographic locations as part of the corporate change in the various contexts that we just discussed, whether it's I-9s or labors or I-140s, H-1s, et cetera. No, absolutely. And one thing I just want to emphasize before we go into this whole section about the change of geographic location, everything that, that Sheila Murthia said, everything that Korzad Mehta said, everything that I have said um, really focuses on the general concepts and the general structures. Each corporate merger, each acquisition, each change, each situation that's an E and an L and there's a purchase or a buyout, each thing that's ha that happens requires a separate analysis. And it's important to understand that though something may look good or may not look good based on this particular teleconference and based on how bright and how attentive our audience is, it is always a good idea to make sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and that you speak to a competent attorney that can focus on your particular situation. It is an investment in your future. It's an investment in your company. It's just honestly the smart thing to do when you get to such a big type of change that's taking place. Sheila, you mentioned about changes of geography and how it, is, how it hits the different issues that we've, spoke, that we've spoken about today. And I'm going to do it as a list, and then I'm going to invite anybody to, you know, either you or mm -hmm. Korzat to come in with some comments. I'm going to start at the top. We started with I-9s. Um, there's really no special rules that are out there for I-9s. So when you're dealing with the change of geographic location, um, as long as your I-9s verify that the person is authorized to be employed by you, as long as all the other laws seem to be in order, um, there does not seem to be any specific thing that you perhaps would need to do. Labor certification, as we spoke about previously, a labor certification cannot be modified or changed. So if it's a geographic location that's outside the metropolitan statistical area indicated on the labor certification, and it's in that stage, stage one or stage two, where there is not a 45 pending for more than 180 days, uh, refiling uh, would probably be the only option that you would have uh, available for you. Now I-140s is a little bit um, is a little bit interesting. Let's go with I-140s where there's no 485 attached to it. If the I-140 is filed, um, I tend to have the client uh, let the I-140 to see if it can be approved or if the I-140 is approved. I tend to also refile the labor certification even as if the metropolitan statistical area has changed. But one thing that I can tell you is there's a special regulation about labor I-140s where the I-140 is approved. It's a 8 CFR 204.5 parenthesis lowercase e end of parenthesis, which deals with retention of priority dates. And while it's important to note that you may have to refile the I-140s or start over and refile the labor certification, there is a distinct possibility. Uh, there is a distinct possibility that the, your employees would not have to go to the back of the line, that the employees would be able to retain their priority date uh, with, that they had from the original case in the subsequent filing. 
Um, H-1B petitions, again, the petition itself has no particular rules. However, the LCAs, the labor condition applications, that's a precursor to filing the H-1Bs, those do have to be maintained and those do have to be updated with the new work location and also the public access files that correlate to them have to also identify the new work location. Um, and I believe uh, L and E petitions also have no special rules. Okay, but when we say no special rules for H-1s, we're talking about filing new H-1, uh, new LCAs, and possibly an H-1 amendment, as we discussed earlier. But there's no other special rules other than doing those amendments and filing LCAs, right? That is correct. Okay, okay. So I just wanted to be sure, uh, you know, again, um, keep in mind that a, a lot of what's out there uh, is primarily letters and memos and guidance. There's not a whole lot of actual black letter law or what we call statutes in America. Very little regulations issued by the USCIS. Uh, for those uh, who are familiar with uh, the Immigration Service, sometimes uh, uh, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, or ALA as we call it, has actually had to sue the US government, uh, the former INS, uh, to demand and insist that they issue regulations uh, because it takes them a very long time because they don't want to commit to something in writing because they feel like this gives them more flexibility to keep modifying and being nimble before they issue regulations. Uh, we understand this is a difficult and uncertain economy. Businesses and companies are trying to survive and do what it takes. And uh, there's been a lot of talk of financial institutions and bank acquisitions and mergers, um, more acquisitions. Um, and uh, we really hope that today's discussion has helped you to understand a little bit of the flavor of the complexity of the issues, the kinds of situations that can come up, the sorts of rules and regulations that may apply, and how a lot of it is in this gray esoteric area, and that's where you need a terrific team, like hopefully we all at the Murthy Law Firm will be, are able to help you and work with you and guide you at this tough time. We certainly hope that we can uh, continue to guide you and help you uh, in processing, whether it's filing H-1B amendments, LCA amendments, new labor certifications if required, I-140 petitions, or guiding you and consulting with you along the process. Um, and, and when the economy picks up, hopefully we can all get back to the good old or bad old days, depending on how you looked at it. Um, the, the one thing I do want you to also know, and I think it looks like Aaron's dying to say something, so I'll let Aaron get to it before I wrap up in one minute. Well, thank you very much, Sue. I know the words are just trying to jump out of my mouth right now. <laughs> but one thing, you can't talk about mergers and acquisitions, I think, uh, without discussing what happens when you merge and the redundant employees that you have. And when you do have substantially redundant employees, unfortunately, you have to talk about uh, people that perhaps layoffs. need layoffs mm -hmm. and things along those lines. And I just really wanted to take an opportunity because I know the Murthy Law Firm has focused and we had our last teleconference on, on layoffs and on transitional employees. And I know that we have a, um, we've set up uh, attorney special, attorney um, teams to be able to help with those types of issues, transitional issues that go on during the, um, during the mergers and during the acquisitions. Um, and these are all things that are very much available and very much resources that we would be um, happy to share. I believe we have a web page for this now. Yeah. Um, Sheila, do you know the I, I believe it's www.murthy.com, of course, forward slash layoffs.html. Um, and of course, like everything on the murthy.com website, you know, it's, we have search engines and search availability for a really long time. 
We depend on the, an incredibly amazing technology creative marketing team to work closely with us because our clients expect the best from us and hold us to the absolute highest standards. And we can mess around with all of you technology people on our, uh, who are our clients constantly uh, asking what the next gizmo or gadget or next bell and whistle on the marthy.com website is. So we're very, very excited about that. As always, we are honored and delighted to continue to help you and assist you and your company as you go along this somewhat difficult time for all of us. Let's all roll up our sleeves and get to working uh, so that you can continue to focus on doing good and hard work and continuing to hopefully make a ton of money, good times or bad, and you can then relegate or delegate all of your immigration needs, uh, whether it's H1s or labor certifications or I-140 filings, to all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm so that we can take excellent and good care of you, help you to continue to succeed so that together with our partnership, we both can win and succeed in the long run. We believe in win-win relationships. We so much thank you for your valuable time with us today and uh, good luck with everything. And if I don't speak with you all, happy holidays and happy Thanksgiving to, until our next teleconference. Have a wonderful rest of the day and a good week. Bye-bye.